0: hey everyone this is sam that girl with the curls bringing you yet another awesome episode of the podcast which i am highly biased towards but don't tell anybody except for all of you who are listening i hope there's a lot of you maybe a few We don't know. Anyway, uh, this is episode 72 with Amelia Ostrad, who uh, wrote a book called The Tattooed Lady, A History, which is uh, hopefully figured out. It's all about uh, tattooed women, um, and specifically the tattooed women of the uh, circus and sideshow acts of the the 19th century. Uh, And it does go into the modern time, but it's mostly about the first couple of rounds of uh, tattooed women, who kind of paved the way for the rest of us. Um it's a really interesting book. I recommend you go out and get it and read it. Um it's a uh, it's got a lot of great uh archival pictures uh as well as um ephemera items and, and whatnot. She uh, we do talk about the the uh the use of the archive and how uh, uh how uh, essential it was to her research. So, uh if you ever wanted to know what it's like to research a subject matter that has uh doesn't seem to have a lot uh to find on it, this this might be the podcast for you. Um I hope you enjoy it. Amelia was great to talk to. Uh we had a lot of fun and uh yeah, uh hopefully uh we'll be reading more from her in the future. So, sit back, relax and enjoy episode 72 with Amelia Ostrid. <laughs>
1: Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Oh, Lydia, the tattooed lady. She has eyes that folks adore so, and that torso even more so. Lydia, oh, Lydia, that encyclopedia. Oh, Lydia, the queen of tattoo. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo. Beside it, the wreck of the Hesperus too. And proudly above waves, the red, white, and blue you Hello? Hello?
0: And Hi, Amelia.
1: Hi. Oh, did
0: you want to do a video? Uh,
2: it doesn't matter. Whatever's better for
0: you. I generally just do it on audio, so, uh... then
2: I'm going to turn a video. Okay. I don't use Skype very
0: often, so... Okay, not a problem. <laughs> so just don't want you to feel like you have to, like present yourself or anything like that. <laughs> it's
2: been a long day. Thank you. You're
0: welcome. I know what that's like. You're just like I don't want to look at anyone or want them to look at me. <laughs> are you are you doing okay? Do you need to get a drink first before we start? No, I'm good. That's Excellent. Good. Um, well, I'm started recording already. So, technically, welcome Amelia Ostrod to uh, that girl with the curls. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, so for the listeners who are, who are hopefully listening to this, um, the reason I got in contact with you is, uh, I picked up your, your book, The Tattooed Lady, A History. Uh, it's the second edition, I believe, uh, with this wonderful, awesome cover. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't remember who this is, is this Irene Woodward on the front?
2: Uh, is it a paperback
0: or a hardcover? Uh, paperback.
2: So that is Maude Stevens Wagner, and that is the second
0: edition. Okay, cool, because it is a suitably badass cover. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, she's a, she was a badass lady.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, re- if I recall, you were at I think Emerald City Comic Con. Uh, to- I was not. You weren't. No. Nope. Oh, was it Geek Girl Con then? I've never been to one of those. No. Oh my god! Then how? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I'm trying to remember, like, I feel like I saw you at a convention of some sort talking about this. And now, uh, apparently this is all under false pretenses. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to stop now. (laughs) But I guess regardless of that, uh, it still managed to speak to me because I'm also heavily tattooed. Excellent. Yes. Um, And so it, it actually feels kind of appropriate talking about this book um and and certainly any of your other geeky tendencies that we can get into as well. Um because I was reading today about um the one hundred women who uh stripped uh got naked at the RNC as protest. Oh,
2: yeah, I saw the headline. I didn't have a chance to read the story yet.
0: But... Yeah. It's um I, I just I felt like it was just it was interesting like how that just came up and I was, you know, kind of going back over your book because you know, the tattooed lady is, is about basically the, uh, the body of women. Absolutely. Um, and how that is a, a space, um, or an object of control of, uh, of society, of, of, um, personal importance and everything. So, um, I guess, you know, instead of like going as broad like that, like I just stated, um, can we, can we kind of start with, uh, what inspired you to start working on this book? absolutely
2: so um let's see it's kind of a, a jumble of things mm-hmm. um really the main motivation was that I um so I have I'm a librarian and I have my master's in library science and when I was in graduate school I decided to do a joint history degree which mm-hmm. my university offered um and I, I guess I should say that I was probably the most clueless graduate student <laughs> ever, um, in so many ways, and somewhere in the application process, like I was already in library school, I started of added the second degree, the graduate school was just not real good at communicating, they changed some stuff midway through, long story short, I got accepted to the history program when I had applied why there was only the requirement that I take the comps for the library science portion, even though mm-hmm. it was the master's degree which kind of seemed like that was too good to be true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I got in and they were like oh, heads up uh, we need you to write a thesis or do a second comps for your second degree. And I was like, oh crap. <laughs> oh no. Yep. Yeah. Reality sets in. Um. <laughs> <and> <laughs> there's kind of no way I was going to do two comps. Mm-hmm. History comps, like library science comps, was um, not that bad. It, it required a lot of memorization of of strange library science facts, of course. <laughs> and you're an, you're an archivist, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, so you know, you sort of know what that ridiculous drill is. Like, <laughs> my husband helped me study with all these flashcards. Like, if you ask him about Ranganathan, Nathan, he can like. <laughs> rattle off the five facets, I don't know, you know, that kind of crap.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: but so, so I didn't want to take a history comps because what people had told me about it was that it was far more intense than just, you know, knowing who Ranganathan was and <laughs> all that other good stuff. So I decided to write a master's thesis, and my background before library science was fine arts. Like, I have a degree in painting and drawing as mm-hmm. an undergraduate. I did some art history, I did some history classes, like, I liked history, obviously, but I wasn't what anyone would call probably, like, a really avid paper writer.
0: Yeah. like <laughs> It's a skill. It's definitely a skill.
2: It's totally a skill. Like, I'd spent my undergraduate years painting still lifes.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: right? Drawing portraits of people, not so, writing
0: papers. Of course, you can do an analytical essay about this entire thing, right?
2: Right, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So, then I started sort of fishing around, like, okay, so, um, right, so, how long does this thing have to be? And they're like, well, it has to be between, like, 75 and 200 pages. So, when I was trying to rack my brain for, like, what I could really write about, Mm -hmm. 75 to 200 pages, because that... That
0: sort of blew my mind with the length. Yeah, it's, uh, cause so when I did, uh, my master's thesis, uh, cause I, the archives program was actually through the history department. Sure. Uh, so it was, it, it wasn't as so much of a gotcha moment as it was, uh, you're just kind of sitting there kind of obsessing over, yeah, how, how long does it have to be? Can I actually write for that amount when you sometimes struggle with just a 10 page paper?
2: Absolutely. What did you write
0: yours on? So my uh, my master's thesis, uh, it, it had to be on an archival subject, so it was on um, archival appraisal. Oh, okay. Yeah, just kind of looking at documentation and the fact that we don't really talk about why we don't keep certain things, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm big yeah. on accountability. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How
2: many pages was it?
0: Um I think uh for the archives students it was actually a very reduced amount because I think it was I only ended up writing about 75. Oh
2: okay. Yeah. Yeah, we can't make you write 200 pages on an archival subject.
0: It's it's actually kind of difficult to find the the uh the amount that you need. Yeah. to go any further than that. I mean there I have a bunch of books in my shelves that are more than 75 pages on archival materials but it's always I don't know, it seems like they're also grabbing from so many other studies that I don't know what original material is actually being added to it. Yeah, yeah it's
2: not like you're, you're you're reinventing the wheel, not coming up with something, like, brand new. Yeah, it's... It, I mean, there's new angles on things, but...
0: Definitely, I mean, and there's definitely, like, um, I've seen people, like, take different philosophies and try to apply it to archives, as well as um, digital, you know, archives are, I think, the new frontier of scholarship, so it's definitely interesting every uh, Society of of American Archivists annual conference, like, what people come up with, so it's like, hey, you guys actually had an idea, that is awesome, so...
2: I think that's way harder. I gotta say, that's gotta be way harder. (laughs) I'm glad they didn't make me do that.
0: (laughs) Some days. Some days you're just like, why did I go into this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I,
2: the struggle is real. Yes,
0: it always has been. And it will always continue to be. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Well, so, so I was fishing around like, okay, so what am I interested in that I could write that much about? There we go. Um. And the... Like, I came up with a couple ideas. Like, I'm really interested in labor history. Um, I, I live in Milwaukee. I've lived in Milwaukee a long time. You know, labor history, socialism. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a big thing in Milwaukee's history, and that sort of stuff always really interests me. Um, but I also kind of got the sense, like, okay, that's that's kind of what every, Like, there's a... Like, everything's been done on that topic, like, local history-wise. Yeah. Like, there's not anything that's unique to explore. And it was... It was impressed upon me that it should be, you know, some unique ideas.
1: It's
0: like, impress us. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, like, no, I'd really just like to maintain the wheel. I don't want to invent the wheel. That's cool. I just,
2: I just want to get through graduate school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, go back to, like, the most clueless graduate student ever. <laughs> um, so, I had been reading about, like, I'd been reading sort of generally about tattoo, tattoo history, because I had a bunch of tattoos, mm-hmm. and I kept seeing all these photos of all these really heavily tattooed women, like, turn of the century photos, and I was like, well, that could be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Sort of, like, basically stabbing in the dark. Like, yeah. <laughs> what, could I find out about this? And I do some, like, really basic research, and I go, okay, there's really nothing written about them. There's, like, one article, and it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, like, you know, both, like, researchers, like, nightmare and dream, right?
0: Yeah, you're, like, discovering something no one's actually written about, and you're like, yes! And then it's like, no!
2: Yeah, like, oh, there's a reason no one's ever written about this. Oh, shit! Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah.
0: resources. So, very low. <laughs> very,
2: very low. Very difficult to find. Again, we go back to clueless graduate students. <laughs> um, and then I just... You know i just sort of like started plugging away and it. it took me a couple of years
0: yeah especially like with the dearth of uh resources that you're at your behest it's kind of hard to write that quickly
2: yeah yeah and I, you know i'm finishing up the the library science stuff and mm-hmm. i'm history classes and i'm working two jobs etc 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 um
0: so you're basically so wonder woman like
2: i yeah i my hair is awfully gray these days. I don't know.
0: I'm sure someday Diana will go to gray as well. I mean, and eventually in the future.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it just, I mean, it's sort of, I like, I sort of got lucky. Mm-hmm. Like I hate to, I hate to say that, but I just basically got lucky. I will say that, um, the classes I was taking in archives and I worked at the UW, UW Milwaukee archives, those really, really helped. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to sort of see a lot of resources that I think other historians who'd looked at the subject hadn't really considered. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that ended up being, again, sort of lucky for me is that in Wisconsin is Circus World Museum, and they have an extensive library and archives. They're about two and a half hours from me up in Baraboo, which is where the Ringling Brothers are originally from. Okay, Um, And so... That is basically the largest resource for circus and sideshow history in the country. And that ended up being within driving distance for me. Um, and they didn't have a ton of stuff, but they had enough, like they had enough pieces. Mm-hmm. I, could, I could delve into other s- sort of spaces and piece things together. I use a lot of, like I use Ancestry.com. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, census records, passport records, um, not so much marriage records, Mm
1: -hmm. um,
2: indexed newspapers. I've used tons and I've spent, I can't even imagine how many hours combing through like newspaperarchive.com, the newspapers at Ancestry, 19th century newspapers, like all those, those indexed newspaper databases. Every couple of years, I sort of go back and I run through my list of names through them because I know they've added more newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, just all these sort of weird little resources that I, I sort of was pulling together, little bits and pieces. And what really struck me the more I looked is that the more, the more I looked, the more I realized that there was a lot of information out there, but it had to be really critically examined. The issue with doing sideshow and circus research, um, especially with these women, is that the stories that got reported in the news and the stories that got remembered are totally bizarre and totally
0: bogus. No, and and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, really strikes, uh, strikes you at first when you start reading these, because the, the tattooed women, uh, uh, tattooed woman of the sideshows and the, uh, you know, the dime museums and whatnot, they come around at a time when, you know, but we're still kind of talking about this, like the idea of propriety and how women, need to be presented to society in order to, you know, show their purity or that they're adhering to societal norms. Uh, Sorry? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have these women who are then suddenly kind of throwing that in, in the face of society through the very act of not only marking their skin, but then showing it and making money off of it. Um, and it's so interesting too, like the, the different narratives that they come up with because, um, I think one that really struck me because I had to read a lot of them in, in school was, um, the captive narrative. Yeah. Uh, can you, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. Those are, those are like, someday I'm going to write a really, really long, really boring <laughs> academic paper on captivity narratives and tattoo performers because they are so weird. Are they? <laughs> They're <That's> so weird. <laughs> but they follow like they follow a formula and men and women use them. Mm-hmm. Um I mean captivity narratives in general have been around for I don't know, a really long time. <laughs> as long
0: as there's been captivity.
2: As long as there's been captivity. As long as there's been captivity, as long as there's been exploration, basically. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you look at sort of the the general world of captivity narratives, there are captivity narratives about the South Seas, lots of Native American captivity narratives, like, again, anywhere you, where you've got cultural conflict, where people are going out into, you know, what they think is a wilderness or a new land and encountering people that are different from them and maybe fighting and there's some there's some captivity going on... <laughs> (laughs) are writing about it because everyone wants to know about it and it's really easy to it's a easy to sensationalize and b it's a way that people really had it was really the way that um you could present other cultures in sort of a a narrative entertainment form Mm -hmm. Um, so some of it is sensational but some of it is also like you know education in quotes yeah (laughs) right and it's not necessarily factual um uh, but if you look at like history books from the turn of the century or eighteen hundred, they're not exactly factual about people from other cultures either. So, you know, it's it's what people knew. Yeah, right? it's it's the quote
0: unquote science of the time.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, and so the, the tattoo performer captivity narratives sort of follow this this formula where the man or the woman is traveling somewhere, the men they're often traveling like they're sailing out in the South Pacific somewhere and they get shipwrecked, and they come into contact with some sort of native on this island, and they get captured, and they have, they're have they forcibly tattooed. Um, for the women, um, the women, with one exception, um, Annie Howard's narrative says she was sailing in the South Seas with her brother, who's really her husband.
1: <laughs>
0: um, it's kind of complicated. For more on that, you'll have to actually read the book. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> a fun one um, but the the other ones are are set in the American West which is of course the the frontier of the end of the 19th century which was very popular mm-hmm. so these women are in some in some contexts traveling in the West and they're tattooed to either protect them from the natives or they're tattooed by the natives so it's, you, can, you can take your pick as to which one you'd like to read
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: but regardless of, of the encounter either the man or the woman, escape slash is rescued. Usually the men escape, the women are rescued. Of course. That's the that's the cultural context of the day, and that's the expected norms. Mm-hmm. Um, but they go on to fame and fortune, right?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And especially, like, for the men, you'd be like, well, okay, all right, you know, you're a dude, whatever, you are traveling the world, now you're, you can exhibit yourself with these strange markings on yourself. For the women, it's extra weird, because it's like, okay, so you were rescued from you know sitting bull's tribe who captured you and tattooed you at the pain of death and blah 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 and you went blind and you recovered your sight somehow (laughs) or disfigured but now you're traveling the country making lots of money by showing off the things that were done to you
1: Mm -hmm. it's like
2: this really weird like this two things that are should be diametrically opposed like it's like you've got the the stuff that people expect of the normal woman like, "Oh, okay, she was a victim and then she got rescued. Mhm. Now she's okay." And then you've got, "Well, she's she's doing really well and you should come and see her and take a look at her and see how she's been disfigured."
0: Yeah. Like that that um the exoticism not only the tattoos, but then this this other narrative kind of builds around it as well, where it's uh, a woman who, by all accounts, should have you know died or you know fainted away at the yes. the very sight of being you know captured, and because the swooning woman is, is is also prevalent as well.
2: Absolutely, and that's usually what happens. Usually, in a captivity narrative that involves a woman in the American West or in the American frontier, the two the two outcomes are she dies, mm-hmm. she is rescued.
1: Those yeah.
2: She's rescued. She sort of slinks away back to her family, and they grudgingly take her back.
0: Yeah, because there's a whole like that that idea of like has she gone native, right. um, kind of thing. And so it's it's really interesting how women appropriated that narrative, or at least at the very least the um, the sideshows that they were a part of appropriated those narratives in order to give them that excuse. You know, yes. t- to, sh- to show what they've done to their bodies, you know, aside from the fact that they personally made that choice to do that to their bodies.
2: Right, but the choice has to be explained in a way that the audiences are going to accept. Exactly. And that choice has to be always framed in, at least by, at the end of the 19th century, in the realm of victimhood. Mm-hmm. Because if you present it as, oh, here's this chick from New York... And she wants your cash. And she knows that you will gawk at her.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: She takes off most of her clothes and shows you all of her weird tattoos. That's not going to fly.
0: <laughs> she just comes out there and be like, hey, I'm doing this for the love of the game, baby.
2: Now give me your money.
0: Yeah. They'd be like, uh, no thank you, woman.
2: Yeah, I'm leaving now. Yeah.
0: They're like, most unorthodox. And then they, like, tip their hat and monocle and whatnot. So. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> As I assume most Victorian men were like.
2: Absolutely,
0: they all had monocles. <laughs> I, I wish. I wish that was the case. Just go back there like, oh my god, everyone has top hats and monocles. Come Thank on. you. <laughs> it's a steampunk lover's dream. Right? <laughs> like, um, and so... I mean, there, there's just so much, I like, I have this book marked up, by the <laughs> way, like it's the best kind of homework that, that I can have. So it's, it's always like trying to like, um, order that in your head. Like, well, how, how do I ask this now? Yeah. Um, the, and then the interesting thing becomes around these women, uh, specifically, uh, because they're all from pretty much working class backgrounds or, uh, you know, uh, more the, the lower class Yes. at the very least. and so what what is really interesting, like how you you talk about them as well, is that they're they're doing this not because they necessarily want to be sensationalized, but it's because they do need to earn money. Yes
2: um, and one one of the things that's really like always like sort of a I guess historical pet peeve of mine
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: and even you could say like, it's a pet peeve of mine in general
1: okay like, the, the myth
2: the, the common and again I'm, I'm doing air quotes here the the commonly held belief that until recently 10, 20, fifty years ago whatever whatever recently means to you mm-hmm. women only worked in the home and they only took care of children and they were only in the domestic sphere, and that is always total fucking bullshit <laughs> yeah. So true. You know, I mean, yes, if you are a rich lady,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: you would be at home, but someone else would be taking care of your kids, um, and your house, Mm -hmm. maybe sitting around. Maybe if you were a middle-class woman, um, you'd be home taking care of your kids, but pre, you know, 1920s, 1930s, when, you know, home conveniences of... Ringer washer machines and ice boxes mm. and gas pyre, gas stove, not not f- like log fueled stoves, made modern housekeeping slightly easier. Mm-hmm. Um, you were making your home. You, as a woman, were making your home as as part of the family income. Yeah, you, were, you know, you were you were doing your part to keep the household afloat because your husband was farming or working in a factory or you were also working in a factory or you were taking in piecework in addition to running the household. You were running the household part of a farm. Like this whole this whole myth of like, oh yes, women just sit around and do the housework and watch the kids. It just drives me nuts. It's like a <laughs> pleasure. It's it's so it is so class dependent. Mm-hmm. Working class women, at least in the again we took you know, recent recent past when you look at urbanization and the industrial revolution and people coming out of sort of the frontiers and the farms and away from like a family-based you know the the household as as full package earning you know not earning but subsistence basically where everyone is involved in subsistence and you get into an urbanization, mm-hmm. urbanization thing and people are working in factories and and working out of the home women have always been working always been contributing in some way to keeping the family afloat whether it is you know piecework or factory work or working as a domestic and working class women have always worked yeah
0: no that that's yeah the the biggest myth there is it's just like no women don't just that you know depending on what class again like what you're saying women work they're always doing something to support the household
2: Yes, absolutely. Regardless of what that means in what context, they're always working. <laughs> <laughs> and this, these women, obviously, yeah, I mean, you're right. They, they didn't certainly choose, it seems, the sensational lifestyle. They probably enjoyed it. It was, you know, and again, these are not women who left, like, written records like, oh, I joined the circus to do blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We have to sort of infer from their choices and their backgrounds as to what their motivation was. But everything that, for the most part, um, that people say about sideshow and circus work from that time period is that it was, in many respects, a community, a community of people who thought a little bit differently, were willing to do different things, were interested in different things. It was a a place where you could come to find a community of like-minded individuals and be comfortable there, regardless of what that meant about... You know where you came from that was a place that you could choose to be and choose to make a living that way
0: and and it's really it, it's it's interesting on another level too because these were these are also a lot of these women um especially the ones that you highlight uh it was a, also a chance for them to reinvent themselves absolutely um, And
2: they reinvented themselves like crazy
0: right like i mean and, and that seems to be like the the almost the traditional narrative of circus performers, yes. you know, regardless of, um, I think you made the distinction between, um, was it a built in, uh, versus made, uh, uh,
2: yeah, made versus
0: born freaks. Born freaks. Yeah. So you, you have basically people with their, with, um, obvious disfigurements and whatnot that, that got them a certain, um, hi- they had a hierarchy definitely, but there's also it feels like at times this kind of cosmopolitan attitude within the community of the circus, you know where you're you have people from so many different backgrounds coming together trying to make something new of themselves, but then also like inadvertently exposing everyone else to them
2: absolutely, yeah, and I would say actually that born freaks no exception from reinventing themselves um mm-hmm. you know if you look at uh you know. Colonel Tom Thumb. I think he was billed as a general or a colonel.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That wasn't, I mean, that wasn't his name.
1: Yeah.
2: um, (laughs) Um, Reinvention is something that the sideshow and the circus take very, very seriously. Yeah. Which makes researching people in that line of work
0: a lot harder. I, yeah. And, and, and definitely uh, I I would love to, to talk to you about that too, because you know this book relies so heavily on research and research that isn't necessarily there for you. Um, when when you were going through those those archives, um, how how difficult was it to suss out? You know, I guess the uh, uh, the narrative from the truth at times. Um, R- were you able to you know, it? Mean, I, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I. I'm sort of at a place where I just question everything now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A good place to be.
2: Yeah. You know, and the, the, sometimes I just kind of can't turn that off in my brain anymore. Like, is this real? Did they make this up? What part of this is real? because the the weird part about, like, the the narratives is that there's all these weird, like, there are these pamphlets, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The narratives are pamphlets that they sold at the side to make extra money, and many performers sold them. And they have all these weird little details in them that if, like, this is what I'm going to write this academic article someday that no one's going to read that I'm just going to geek out over. Well,
0: I'll, like, I'll read it so you'll have at least one person.
1: So.
2: <laughs> like, pulling out just these, like, de- like, sentence by sentence, like, okay, so what it... What does that weird little detail mean? Is that an actual reference to the person's life? Is that something that's totally made up? Like trying to second guess, like why would you put that detail in there? Is that a clue? Mm-hmm. Like,
0: what does that mean? Do they so? Do they get like really specific about something, or is is it is it just kind of like an anomalous line?
2: Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull one up because. The, I'm, gonna, I'm looking for one on my computer right
1: now because
2: there's they're so weird. <laughs> like, talk about geeking out. Um,
0: well, it's uh, kind of like when you when you lie to someone. Like, you get like because I I had to coach my sister one time on how to lie effectively because the more detail you add, the harder it is to kind of go back on it. You right. know, later. But people will get oddly specific and far more detailed when they're trying to lie than when they're just telling the truth.
2: Yes. Yeah. A, that is that is exactly it. Um, I'm trying to pull up Nora Helterbrand's because there's this weird, weird. I think it's the one. There's a weird line in there. All right. And I have so like I have so many files. I've been collecting these things.
0: Yeah, you're probably like developing your own archive, basically.
2: Let's see. All right. Okay. This celebrated lady was born in Melbourne, Australia, on the 2nd of September in the year 1860. Of English parents, and remained in Melbourne, Australia until 1865, then sailed for America when but five years of age, friendless and alone. (laughs) That's how it starts.
1: Friendless and alone.
2: Friendless and alone. Her mother died one year before her departure, the father deserting the mother and child. After hearing of his wife's death, he sent for his child to come to New York, where he received her and cared for her as a parent should by placing her in the Convent of the Sacred Heart at Yonkers, New York, <laughs> under the care of Mother Superior de Chantelle, where she remained from the year 1866 until 1878, her father defraying all expenses and sparing nothing on her education. <laughs> okay. So, the Convent of the Sacred Heart at Yonkers, New York, under the care of Mother Superior de Chantelle. Mm-hmm. Why is that
0: in there? What can that mean? <laughs> it's like they 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 feel this need to just like chronicle every moment of their life just to leave like no detail un 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 uh unwritten. Right, and is
2: that was she really in that kind of like was she really in that place? And I did some digging. The convent of the Sacred Heart at Yonkers, New York, did exist, mm-hmm. but it didn't exist until after she was supposedly there. <laughs> So why is that in there? Like what what does that mean? It
0: I I think it so much speaks to the fact-checking of the time.
2: Right. Um but interestingly, so she she was born her her parents she was born in London.
1: Mhm.
2: Her parents were probably Irish, but she was born in London. Okay. She was not born in Australia, and she was born in 1857, not 1860. So she was making herself a little bit younger. Well, there you go. Um, she did sail for America when she was young, probably friendless and alone, but she came here to work. She came here to be a maid. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, did her mother die one year before her departure? Did her father desert her mother? I don't know. Was <laughs> her father here? Like, there's all these like little, like, okay, so I know enough about her to be like, okay, so some of this stuff lines up, but some of this stuff is so weird. And then you, like, you go further on in this thing, and, you know, this is a this is the one where she's uh, she and her father are traveling in the west, and they're captured by Sitting Bull.
0: Oh, is this where she like like her father has to tattoo her?
2: Yes, this is the this is the um, she's tattooed by her father under pain of death. I think to her father for three hundred sixty five days, and this is because Sitting Bull wants a tattoo from her father, mm-hmm. but someone convinces Sitting Bull that maybe it's not safe. Okay. So he has to test it out on her for a year. Oh, of course. Of course, that's kind of how this goes. Like you do.
1: Yeah.
2: Duh. Right. (laughs) So in the narrative, they they specifically list. um, Let's see. The the council of war was held. They were placed under guard, which consisted of Sitting Bull, Red Cloud, Spotted Tail, White Wolf, Sun in the Face, (laughs) etc. etc. So I looked all those people up. Those are all real guys. Oh, okay. Um, but they were all individual Lakota warriors who were all mentioned in the newspaper when this narrative would have been sold. Mm-hmm. So they're doing they're doing basically this sort of shout out to the audience to say, "Hey, she was captured by a bunch bunch of really bad assholes. <laughs> totally tortured her via her father. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's like you have to know the context of." of the audience to understand what on earth these narratives are saying, because at this point we're so far removed from other, any, any, you know, sitting bowl we recognize. Yeah. But the rest of those guys, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to like have it in your head, especially nowadays to actually look them up and you know, what are the chances you would need to look them up unless you were doing research, I suppose.
2: Right. Absolutely. But so each one of these narratives is filled with stuff like this. Mm hmm. And it's like this weird, to me, it's like this weird little treasure hunt. Like, well, what does this mean? What does this really say?
0: No, it's it's really, there's a, I think there's a database of um, dime novels as well. Yeah. Where they yep. like, they go those through are, the different types of narratives and whatnot. Those are super fun. Right? It's just so like fun. so sensationalized and uh, especially, I love all the ones about Wild Bill because it's just, it's Wild Bill. <laughs> it's Wild Bill. <laughs> it's Wild it's Bill. Wild <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's very, it's, it's interesting too, because it's, it's referential in a way that we can kind of understand now.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, where we, we have television shows and cartoons and, and, and movies and whatnot where we make tons of references. Whereas, you know, if you were to like jump ahead a good hundred, you know, 200 years or something like that, people would be like, well, we have no idea what this is in reference to. So you, you have to understand the context of the culture. Absolutely. You know, to really get where these what what these narratives are trying to accomplish at the same time.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, because otherwise, if you just read them, you're kind of like, uh, she was captured and tortured. Yeah. Guy, I don't know. You know, but, Indians captured and tortured her. Which is, if you look at some of the sort of general circus and sideshow histories, that's basically all they say. Oh, yeah, she was supposedly captured by Sitting Ball and tortured. Yeah. Well, no, not really. <laughs> not really. You've missed, like you've missed what the point of that narrative is, which is a way for the performer and the performer's manager to make a connection with the audience and entertain the audience in a way that the audience is going to understand.
0: Yeah, and it's it's letting the audience understand, but then and also piquing that curiosity, uh, which is what those sideshows were all about. It's about making a, a quick buck off of the curiosity and sensationalism and exoticism, because, um, you cover this in the book as well, that, you know, generally speaking, the people, the, the towns that they're going through, especially in the, in the United States, um, they can't go, like, outside the, the, you know, the closest city, really. Yeah,
2: they're isolated, they, you know, they don't have many entertainment options, they don't have a lot of educational options. Mm -hmm. You know if these are people living in isolated small towns you know somewhere in the Midwest you yeah. know somewhere in New England you know what else is there right
0: exactly and like this is the closest that they sometimes get or if at, at, at any time get to something that is outside the norm for them
2: absolutely yeah yeah it's a it's a break from the mundane
0: mm-hmm and, and there's this, I, there's also this thing about, like, I think Victorian society, too, where, you know, we have the, um, the very, like, you know, stick up their ass kind of idea of a Victorian society, especially. Yes. <laughs> um, and to, so to see, you know, things like this, like the circus uh, kind of invade that space is, is interesting in and of itself because of what kind of influence does it actually, you know, leave behind, you know, once they, they leave for the next town
2: also have to you also have to sort of divide up like okay so we have this idea of the Victorians and the Edwardians as people with sticks up their butts. That's only one group of them.
1: Mm-hmm. You also
2: got the group of people, again mostly working class, who are going to, you know, whatever entertainment is available and getting into it. They're not they're not sort of holding their noses and going, Ooh, I'm offended, I'm offended. Yeah. You know they're down there screaming for more, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a nice to me. It's sort of a nice um, uh, what stereotype buster, I guess. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, and and I think that's what's really great about something like this this kind of scholarship. The um, what I uh, was wanting to ask you really was: um, Did you find anything written by these women like j- for themselves? Because uh, you know, being researchers, you and I have both had to deal with this, where you have unreliable narrators yeah. um, a lot of the time, and obviously with the narratives that are constructed around them, that they allowed to be constructed around themselves, or that they constructed, you know, willingly, uh, did you find any that, you know, just like personal papers of these women, like, the that felt more truthful than the, I guess, the dime novels that you were reading? Sadly, no. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That that is that is the greatest tragedy I think that any historian or researcher really falls into. It's where it's like, you want to hear from these people
2: Oh, desperately.
0: Yeah, the, in their own words, like what they thought of themselves, what they thought of the world around them. I mean, you're never going to get anything like straight shots like that all the time, but just even a diary is a huge boon to research.
2: Yeah, no, sadly nothing. Damn.
0: I know. It's like, damn it. Um, so like as, uh, cause you, you do a really great job of like showing like the progression of, uh, of society and also like how society viewed tattooed women. Um, and, and what was especially interesting to me was the way that these women viewed their own bodies and how we have to kind of take it outside of our current feminist, like awareness of the body.
2: Yes. And thank you for bringing that up. That's, that's something that I really try to stress,
1: Mm
2: um, mostly because I've seen, so the first academic article and the only academic article that I read that mentioned these performers before I started my research really focused on sort of assigning a modern context of body awareness to them, Mm -hmm. and I was really troubled by, Um, and certainly that's not to say that women in the past weren't aware of their bodies and weren't conscious of the power of their bodies Mm -hmm. but not in a way that we as modern women I think would really relate to I I tried to be really careful not to put sort of my own like modern lens on you know expression um, feminist expression feminist body expression um, certainly these were women who didn't have a lot of inhibitions true um,
0: they were pretty okay with it <laughs> they were
2: totally okay with it uh, within a specific context mm-hmm. I would say um, they clearly didn't have an issue getting tattooed but it's the more the more looking people do the more people find tattoos in the past so that ends up not being quite as unusual as I think think
0: it is yeah you do a really great um kind of like intro to tattoo history in a way where it's like it really wasn't like a new thing like this has been going around for way longer than we want to believe it did
2: yeah absolutely um so i I try to just i try not to sort of project my own like viewpoints on what my tattoos mean to me as a modern woman Mm -hmm. onto these women as performers because i don't i don't feel that it's the same thing and i don't I don't want to put words in their mouth that I don't think. A, they probably had, or B, were something that was was an attitude that was evident in the culture at the time.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, definitely, if you, you know, based on like if you're framing it within this idea that these are women who are working class, like looking to provide, if not for themselves, then just them for their families, the the idea of body awareness in the, in the way that we have it now is very, is so different, you know, in terms of they're not putting tattoos on themselves to necessarily make a statement on purpose. Right. You know, it's, it's just being like, okay, in order to make the money that I need, I'm going to have to commit myself. And it's a huge commitment. I mean, it's, you know, there's gotta be like for every woman that actually, you know, quote unquote made it as a tattooed woman, there's, there's definitely got to be, like, plenty of horror stories of women who went that far and it just didn't work out for them.
2: And there totally are. There's a number of women that I've seen, like, one photo of and, like, one or two newspaper mentions of, and then they disappear. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, poof, it just didn't work out. Maybe they weren't comfortable on stage, or maybe they didn't have a good stage presence. You know, maybe, who knows? Yeah, yeah. there's just nothing else like they just disappear and it's probably because whatever name they were using was not their real name
1: Mm -hmm.
2: um and they didn't leave enough clues because their career wasn't long enough for me to really track them down
1: yeah
0: and then i mean it's not like anyone was like was purposely chronicling this stuff either so it's like you because i know there's a few pictures in the book where it's just like unknown tattooed woman i mean and that's that's all you have
2: yeah, and that's all. <laughs> I'll keep
0: looking. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're like, give up. <laughs>
2: yeah, like sometimes there's just there's there's nothing else to find,
1: mm-hmm. you
2: know. And it 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 makes me wonder, you know, for for a lot of these women, and certainly the the later women, you know, in the twenties and thirties would have had a harder time hiding their tattoos, but pre 1900. You know, if you think about what women wore, yeah. <laughs> and if the family and your neighbors were used to it, like, oh, hey, so-and-so tried to, you know, tried to go join the circus and it didn't work, here she is, mm-hmm. she's, you know, here with the rest of us, doing whatever it is we're doing, um, you know, no big deal,
1: right?
0: Yeah. You get, like, later into it, and this is like you have this obvious, like, look at your own failure, basically. Right. Which I mean and it, it's it's horrible to think of it that way, but I think it's it's very um similar to I mean, my father looks at me with, with my tattoos as if I've made some kind of horrible mistake. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. and and certainly there's there's a generation that do, you know, that's just going to continue to look at you know, all of us young people with our tattoos and whatnot and be like, Why would you do that? Why? <laughs> like <laughs> No, and, and, and that kind of leads me into, uh, towards the end of the book, you, you kind of cover the legacy of the tattooed women. Um, because obviously now in our culture, having tattoos is not uh, a new thing, nor is it as racy or scandalous as it once was. Um, what do, what do you feel is the biggest, um, impact or, uh, you know, what is the legacy of these tattooed women?
2: Oh, good question.
0: Um, (laughs) I do really, I do
2: really think that for many sort of, of the more conservative Americans who would have gone to the sideshow, um, this probably would have been one of the most obvious and in-your-face meetings they would have ever had with a woman with tattoos. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that they didn't know women maybe had a tattoo but they didn't know they had a tattoo you know what i mean like a secret tattoo um which then only someone who was an intimate partner would know um but i do really think it was it was something that sort of burned itself into the consciousness like if you say oh hey lydia the tattooed lady most people are going to know what the heck you're referring to Mm -hmm. right like it's it's become a part of sort of entertainment lore um, for better, or for worse, <laughs> just because because the act was around for so long, yeah. Um, which is really, which is really sort of the interesting part about it, um, is that people were even, you know, even by the sixties, seventies, eighties, people were getting more comfortable with seeing tattoos, seeing tattoos physically on women. They were still willing to see this as an entertainment. Um, but I just, I think it, I think it made a lot of this stuff more
0: apparent to more people. Yeah, there, there's definitely a, a, a way, you know, you can chart it from different angles, like how tattoos became uh, more exposed and therefore more acceptable, you know, not just with tattoo ladies, but then you have soldiers and prisoners, and, you know, uh, but in it's like the, the different avenues that tattooing became, you know, far more incorporated into our culture is just really kind of fascinating. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And you can you can follow it down all sorts of really
0: fun rabbit holes yeah <laughs> there was um so because so i'm here in seattle and there was an exhibit i think a couple of years ago where it was a um, polynesian art and one of the sections was all about polynesian tattoos oh cool yeah i was there with my stepmother and she was like sam there's all this this whole thing about like the whole body and it's like it's like a replica of the whole skin like they had i mean yeah. that's just the that's the weirder part of it where she's like it's a human skin thing. You should look at it. It's like, "Oh, okay. That's that's cool, but I'm not that morbid. Thank you." All right. <laughs> but there there is still like this um there's still this interesting thing about spectacle of tattoos as well, like even just body modification in general because, you know, tattoos are what they are, but then there's this this whole culture built around like how can I change my body and make it more obvious to people. Like, how can I almost shock them in a weird way?
2: Yeah, yeah. And that may be tattoos, that may be piercing, that may be plastic surgery, or who knows what sort of, you know, extreme body modification that people will come up with. You know, there's always going to be people who want to be extreme examples of humanity,
0: Mm -hmm. right? It's like there's this, uh, I I think it's almost like this need to be shocked yeah. You know, yeah. To, ha- to have, like, that place we can still go to that seems like it's taboo, but we kind of accept it anyway. Yeah. It's...
2: Well, and that, that, that is the circus in Sideshow right there. Yeah,
0: exactly. no, exactly. Like, we, we still want that circus aspect to be a part of us because, you know, the, the circus as it is now in terms of, like, you know, Ringling Brothers or you have Cirque du Soleil, which is much more the artsier version of it, it's a safe space, obviously, you know, for... It's- very tame. Yes, very tame. <laughs> Love the
2: circus, but it is in in today's context it's very tame.
0: Yeah, it's it's tamed and there's um because you know you see it kind of in movies or in television sometimes where and and perhaps in your research you saw this like was it it was much more intimate at times like back in the uh turn of the century, wasn't it? Well, it depended.
2: Um it depended what circus you saw. If you saw the colossal Barnum and Bailey circus.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the it was you know two to three rings and it was massive,
1: mm-hmm. but there
2: were so many like one ring, very small circuses that toured the country that those would have been much more intimate performance spaces.
0: Okay, yeah, because it just it feels like that there would be like this a uh, place for them to like be very close in terms of just like bodies, like nearby like I don't know uh, like what was the um like if you had a tattooed lady how much space was between her and the actual audience
2: oh sure yeah so for for the sideshow yeah indeed it was it was very up close and personal because there was an expectation that the performer would talk to you and would tell you their story and so you were you know sort of standing in front of them while they were on like a raised platform so you were very close
0: okay so it gives you the chance not only to kind of really see up close and personal what they have tattooed on them, but then is also that opportunity for the performer to, you know, kind of solidify that story in their minds.
2: Absolutely. There's, um, there's a couple of, there's a couple of newspaper clippings that I've seen of, um, performers slapping audience members who got a little too fresh with them. Ooh. or, Or, um, one, uh, Frank Howard, um, Assaulted a guy who said nasty things about his wife. Oh. Punished the fellow, I believe, was the uh, quote in the newspaper. Oh,
0: I love I love that kind of writing. Yeah. <laughs> like,
2: yeah, So there's there's definitely a sense that people were close enough to touch, even though they shouldn't have been.
0: Yeah, well, it's not like they're going to give all the magnifying glasses and be like, "Well, have at it," and like, right. <laughs> um. So. So we're, we're getting, you know, close to the end of the hour. So um, first of all, I, if in case it wasn't clear, I really enjoyed the book. It was. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but let, let's, uh, I, I kind of want to talk to you more a little bit about your experience being tattooed and, and, and whatnot. Um, it, I mean, if you don't mind that. No, I don't
1: mind it at all.
0: Okay. Uh, so what was your your first tattoo? And do you kind of remember why you wanted to get one in the first place? <laughs> well, i have a uh a very 1990s
2: celtic armband okay
0: that i got in 1995 um, <laughs> it's very 90s it's like
2: it's so 90s its, it's name so, is chad um i don't ever and i i guess this is I always find it very hard to explain why I I get
0: tattoos. <laughs> no, I, I pers- you know, personally like I I kind of fall into that same category sometimes. Yeah. Like the as I've gotten older and the the tattoos have gotten a, a lot more elaborate. Like my first tattoo is is of a sun and I'm uh. pale as fuck. So there's no reason for me to have a sun on my body at all. <laughs> it just seemed like a good idea at the time. Right? right? No, I I feel like the first tattoo is always kind of this like, and I don't, maybe it is a generational thing now, but it feels like for maybe our generation, it was much more of the, I just want to have the tattoo. Yeah. Like, I really don't care what it is at this point, as long as it looks pretty okay. Yeah. yeah.
2: I, I spent um, most of my childhood and adolescence drawing on myself. Okay. And drawing on my clothing. <laughs> um, I am ridiculously attracted to patterns in clothing and in fabric and like it's sort of a joke that I will go shopping with my friends they'll be like oh look here's this crazy pattern thing this is totally you (laughs) yep yes it is
0: like give it over I'm going to spend money on it now
2: yeah yeah because it looks ridiculous and it's totally crazy and it's a crazy pattern so like I kind of see it as that is part of it, as Mm -hmm. I am just, I'm just really drawn to color and pattern and design, and this is sort of how I, how I can have it all the time with me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And do you feel like, um, like the more tattoos you've gotten, like, have they progressed in any way? Like, I mean, that you feel that they have, you know, in terms of meaning or design, anything like that? Um, it really
2: depends. Um, I am, one of those people who's like, "Oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's
0: go do that now." <laughs> it's like you want to get this done. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> oh,
2: maybe not the best plan when it comes to tattoos, but that's kind of how. Like, okay, sure. Why the hell
0: not? Oh. I, well, even that in and of itself becomes the story. Like the the story surrounding a tattoo is often like is is always interesting. uh You know, to me at least. Uh, at the Society of American Archivists conference in San Diego, which was, I think, about three or four years ago, we had a whole panel about tattoos as archives. Oh, cool. Yeah, and and it really just kind of sparked that whole idea. I ended up doing an article that kind of, like, chronicled my tattoos. Like, like I was sitting in my mother's living room being like, all right, I need you to take this picture and this picture. <laughs> so yeah. There's a, a couple I can't get the right angle on, so... Yeah. And, and it was really, for me, it was really interesting because it was just, first of all, it's exposing like all those parts of, you know, my body that not everyone gets to, you know, gets to see pretty much. And then also kind of talking about like, well, why did you get that? And does the meaning still stick for you now? Or do you kind do you regret it? Or do you have a different meaning? Like, you know, that kind of stuff is, I find the narrative behind a tattoo is always sometimes more interesting.
2: Yeah, well, and it chronicles where you were at that
0: point in your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, and then when I took this part of my skin off right here. Like, <laughs> I I always, I, I kind of wonder if it's the same for people who, like, really alter their bodies in terms of, you know, like, the newer kind of augmentations that are happening now. Like, is the story any more interesting than what you really see in front of you? Yeah, no, that's a
2: good question. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Go yeah. talk to some of those people. Yeah, <laughs> um and uh, and i guess as we're kind of like wrapping up here uh are do you feel like there's um have you found any new information that you feel could go towards the book or towards i mean i know that you you want to write the article that you know no one will read yeah uh, <laughs> do you feel that there's been more information kind of brought to light about tattooed women um from that time period or do you feel like maybe the research in that area has stagnated a little bit
2: is I've been able to connect with people who also have sort of tangential and that sort of same type of research interest mm-hmm. um, who are interested in sort of specific topic specific like uh, some people I know are coming out with a book on the history of tattooing in Boston. Oh, okay, which I know will include some information about Frank and Annie Howard. I hope they're able to find more than I did because
0: i hit a dead
2: end no so like there's definitely people out there who are interested in this and doing more digging and doing more research which is really wonderful um and new information you know it's the the beauty of um digitization and putting archival information online and making it accessible is that stuff that you didn't know existed that was hidden away somewhere before is now accessible through the magic of OCR text searching. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that more and more information becomes available so we can figure some of this stuff out.
0: Yeah, there's always a there's always a new set of eyes that find something.
2: Yeah, and that's wonderful. That's totally wonderful. It's
0: great. Like, I can't wait to have kids one day so we can just put them to use in the archive.
2: We'll yep. <laughs> yep. find stuff
0: like, research what mommy needs you to research. Go ahead. (laughs) Find something fun. I don't know. Um, Well, that's, you know, Amelia, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been really, like, wanting to to talk to you about this for a while now, and so I'm I'm really glad we could connect about this. Yeah, this
2: was fun. Thank
0: you very much for inviting me. Yeah. um, And so before we go, are there... Uh, is there any place that people can find you online? Are you, you know, doing lectures? Anything you want to promote? Uh, this is going to go out actually this Friday.
2: Okay. Um, I don't have anything upcoming. I have a, I have a Tumblr, um, that I don't contribute to really, <laughs> really. <laughs> It's
0: the story of the internet. <laughs> uh,
2: um, you can, you can basically find me on Tumblr or Facebook, um, TattooLadyHistory.tumblr.com. Very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should be working on a new book on um, a tattooed man, and I life is chaotic, and that that's sort of in the in the sidelines right now. So I feel like I'm sort of like, oh, I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind. <laughs> um, that's that. Talks occasionally and, and that sort of stuff. I post on on my
0: Facebook page and on my Tumblr page. So okay, uh, and I'll link those in um, when I when I put this out as well. Awesome, perfect. Yeah, no problem. And uh, as uh, as always, people, the uh, the deets are for me uh, at darling underscore Sammy on Twitter. Uh, you can go to Maniacal Geek to uh, read the articles as well as listen to the podcast. Because I don't know anything about consolidating brand. And you can also go on Facebook and iTunes. So, as always, good night, everybody. Thank you. Good night.
1: Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Oh, Lydia, the champ of them all. She once swept an admiral, clear off his feet. The ships on her hips made his harp skip a beat. And now the old boy's in command of the fleet. For he went and married Lydia.